This is a Saddleback Church podcast. It is fall 2023, and there are nearly 8 billion people in the world. That's right, 8 billion. With such a big number, and these people spread out in all different continents, countries, and with different cultures and heritages, it is easy to point out that there are also many, many different religions. And I say this, and it sounds obvious, but sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own world that we forget that not everybody thinks the same way about religion and faith as we do. Well, here's the thing. If we are called to love our neighbor, right, to love them as ourselves, shouldn't we know then about their faith? Faith often plays such a large role in a person's life. We should know what it is other people believe. My guest today is Dr. Douglas Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and author of many books, including his latest release, World Religions in Seven Sentences. Dr. Groteis and I discuss why it's important for Christians to understand other world religions, and we look specifically at three religions talked about in his book. We end with a discussion about the state of religion and the rise of apathyism. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. My name is Jason Wheeland, and this is Doable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast, part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Now, my conversation with Dr. Douglas Groteis. And Dr. Groteis, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. You're welcome. Happy to be with you. So let's start. We're talking right now around your book, World Religions in Seven Sentences. So let's start with why is it important for people, and in this case, and particularly for Christians, to understand other religions? Well, it's because we live in a religiously plural world. Some areas are less pluralistic than others. You know, if you live in a small farming town in the country, you're probably not going to run into a lot of Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims, but you might. And even if someone was not raised in one of those other religious traditions, they could very easily learn about it on the Internet. So let's say even if you're in a rural farming community uh, where you don't have a mosque or you don't have a Jewish synagogue, People can still learn about these other religions on the internet and be influenced by them. But if if you especially live in a metropolitan area, such as I do, the Denver area, you have uh, people with various beliefs. We have Buddhist temples and synagogues and mosques and uh, various kinds of churches and so on. So I think it behooves Christians to understand the major beliefs of the world religions for two main reasons. The main one... The first of the main ones is so we can communicate Christianity to those who are involved in other religions. We need to know where the Christian message, the gospel, differs from, and in some ways is similar to uh, the beliefs of other religions. And secondly, 
we're called to be good citizens and to love our neighbors ourselves. So I want to be respectful towards my neighbors and understand something of what they believe. And they have the freedom of religion and freedom of speech as much as I do. And nothing I've said in this book, as I say in the introduction, is meant to uh, somehow impose uh, a Christian theocracy on everybody. The idea is rather to understand what the major world religions teach. And then through the book, I also give an argument for the truth of Christianity against the other religions. But I certainly honor uh, people's freedom of religion. And Christianity is best propagated, of course, and most biblically propagated through persuasion, not through coercion or intimidation or anything like that. That's really not the way of Jesus or the early church. Yeah, I think, and you do such a profound job within the book of creating a context of just saying there are so many other people in this world, there are 8 billion people in this world, they do not all think and have the same faith as you. So if we are going to be here, not just as citizens of of our country, but of the world, it just it behooves us to to take into account and to think about, huh, I wonder what other people believe, what other people think. And you do so in such a, a, a respectful way that I think is profound. And we'll get to that again at the end of our conversation. I want to come back to that point in specific. But for our listeners right now, I'd love to focus in on, uh, on a few of the religions or beliefs that you talk about in your book. We're not going to hit all of them and because I'm encouraging everybody to go and buy this book. I think at the time that this releases, the book is actually just about to come out. So perfect. I will have the link in the show notes as well. Um, so and, and I want to note that it's especially helpful as you describe the tenets of each religion, like you said, um, um, and what you were just sharing, is you do so through kind of the lens of Christianity. You say, well, here's how this differs from what we believe as Christians. So as we're doing so, um, let's start with atheism, which is the first that you talk about in the book as well. Um, so how should we understand and think about atheism? Yes, well, I started with atheism because atheism in the West is a growing belief system. Uh, the last poll that I've seen by Gallup said that only 80% of Americans had a strong belief in God, and that's the lowest they have ever recorded. Mm. And we may remember about 15 years ago, there was a movement called the New Atheist that was very militant, led by people like Richard Dawkins, mm. Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Dennett, and others. And they were not only atheists, but they were militant atheists, and they thought religion was bad. For everyone. Now, I think that movement has cooled off a little bit, but nevertheless, atheism is growing, especially in America. And I don't take atheism to be a religion per se. Some people do. I think a religion has to affirm something about a, a sacred or supernatural realm. So atheism doesn't believe in any sacred or supernatural realm. They believe the universe is all that exists. They're naturalists, right? But if atheism is true, then all religions are wrong, because atheism claims not only there's no God, but the universe is all that there is. There's no nirvana or Tao or anything like that. And so I took a very famous, maybe infamous atheist as my mm -hmm. spokesman here, and that's Frederick Nietzsche. 
And the statement I took for him is simply, God is dead. And that's taken from one of his writings uh, that in the American translation is called The Gay Science, or more recent ones have called it, I think, The Joyous Wisdom. Mm -hmm. But it's a little parable of a man who shows up in public and says, I seek God, I seek God. And uh, people make fun of him, you know, has he gotten lost? Where is he? And then this man goes into this long speech about how uh, God is dead, we have killed God, and therefore by killing God, everything that is sacred has been destroyed. There's no purpose, meaning, or value to life. The universe is not created. It's not on its way to a destination. It is uh, spinning through empty space. A very profound little parable, and I quote the whole thing in the book, and then I evaluate some of Nietzsche's arguments against Christianity. And one of his arguments was, when he, by the way, when he said God is dead, he meant we need to own up to the fact that there's no God. Yeah. Uh, there never was a God for Nietzsche, but he thought that a lot of Europeans in his day were pretending as if God were there, so they kept Christian morality, Christian sensibility, but they just stopped going to church and stopped believing in God. He said, no, everything changes. There's no basis for objective morality. There's no teleology. There's no purpose for life. There's no afterlife, and so on. But Nietzsche did give a few arguments against God's existence. One of them was that Christianity is anti-life, meaning that because there is another world and there is a God apart from this world, this world is evaporated, is drained of all meaning. And so Nietzsche says, no, we need to be true to the earth. We have to be true to the body. And he had this idea of the heroic figure who would deny all religion and would affirm uh, the vital powers of life within oneself. He called this uh, an ubermensch or an overman or a superman. But I deal with this in the book briefly, and that is that while Christianity says there is another world, there's God above the world, and there's a better world coming in the future, it by no means denies the created goodness of this world. When you look at Genesis, God says over and over again, after he creates, it is good, it is good, and after he creates human beings, in his image and likeness, he says, it is very good. So the world is originally, and in its constitution, good by divine design. Now, of course, the second act in the play of existence is the fall. So human beings rebel against God, and we live in a fallen, broken, wounded world. And because of that, there are things about ourselves that we have to deny. We need to turn away from selfishness and turn toward God. But Nietzsche thinks that the negative statements in the Bible about denying the flesh and being humble and so on are actually anti-life. But they are not anti-human or anti-life. They're simply the way to live in a fallen world. So the world is originally and still in its constitution good. God is good. God created a good world, but we have turned against God. And so to find goodness in a fallen world, we need to repent. You know, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow me. So when Nietzsche, as an atheist, hears language about self-denial, the cross, and so mm -hmm. on, 
he just thinks, well, what is this masochism? Mm -hmm. You know, it's against the throb of life and that's all we have. But it's not. It's about turning against the fall by submitting to the work of God in Christ. And Christ offers life. He offers abundant life, as he says in John 10. But that abundant life is only available to those who humble themselves before God. And that's certainly something Nietzsche never wanted to do. He affirmed himself. He affirmed uh, that the only way to find meaning in life was to courageously go against all received religious traditions and to affirm oneself as a kind of tragic hero against existence. Mm. So if there is no God, then maybe Nietzsche has something to say, but there is a God, <laughs> and there's plenty of good reason, actually, from philosophy and science to believe in God. Yeah. And I find Nietzsche's attacks against God to be very insubstantial, mm. even though they're very passionately and poetically put much of the time. Mm. It, it, it seems like it seems like the push for the new atheism, and, and even in what you were talking about now, re referencing that statistic about only 80% of uh, people right now would say that they believe in a god. That it, it, that that big drive towards atheism is almost a rebuttal or rebellion away from wanting to be put under something, to be constricted, to have boxes. Would you say that that's kind of mm -hmm. a big drive towards that push towards atheism? Right. Well, I think part of it is rebellion against God. It's not so much atheism as the hatred of God. I saw that certainly in uh, the late Christopher Hitchens. Sure. A lot of his critique was simply, I don't want to be under any authority, and I'm offended at the idea that God would know everything. Mm -hmm. And Nietzsche voiced something very similar in one of his statements. Like, I can't stand the idea of God peeking into my secrets, mm -hmm. therefore I will deny God. Well, there's a better answer to that, and that is uh, God does know everything, including our own turpitude and our own selfishness and pettiness and cruelty and all the rest. So why don't we own up to that, confess it before him as true, and receive forgiveness and direction for a new life? But I think while Nietzsche is still very popular, in fact, you can go into bookstores and you'll see multiple books by Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of the atheism today is more based on apathy than it's based on outright rebellion against God. Mm -hmm. Some of the atheism has that oppositional quality to it. But I think a lot of atheism today just stems from people not wanting to investigate religious and philosophical claims, not wanting to bother with it, kind of giving up on ultimate issues and just saying, yeah, God, nah, you know, <laughs> yeah. who cares? Uh, maybe there is one, but probably not. I'll call myself an atheist. Mm. Now, that view is very unwise and illogical, but it seems to be growing. In fact, um, years ago, my book, Christian Apologetics, I talked about this idea called apathyism that was advanced by a guy named Jonathan Rausch. And apathyism simply says, uh, don't get too excited or passionate about anything because the people who are motivated and ardent for their beliefs start wars and are become terrorists and are rude at dinner parties. So let's just be apathetic about everything and kind of float through life. That's really to betray our humanity because we need to know 
what is good and true and beautiful. We shouldn't give up until we find it. So let's talk about one of the other religions that you talk about in the book. So let's move on to Judaism. I think that there can be a lot of confusion amongst Christians about how to think about Judaism. <laughs> so can you <laughs> help us understand, uh, yeah, or how, yeah, help us understand and just talk about how Christians should think about Judaism? Right. Well, just, I think it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I had lunch with a Jewish rabbi and his daughter and a mutual friend. And I mentioned that I had written this book, Philosophy in Seven Sentences, mm -hmm. and that I had chosen the sentence where God reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses and says, um, Moses asks him, asks him, who's talking to me? You know, good question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, God says, I am who I am, or sometimes translated, I will be who I will be. Mm -hmm. And he thought, he and his daughter thought that was very interesting that I chose that statement because they thought I would probably choose uh, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I chose that because at the center of certainly the Hebrew Bible is the being of God and God speaking, God communicating, God making covenants, God working miracles in history. So in a little book like this, my book, world religion in seven senses i can't really claim to give a good overview of judaism as a whole in fact if you want a book it gives very good overviews of religions and responses i highly recommend win cordwin's book neighboring fates mine is more like a philosophical investigation of key ideas in the world religion yeah so what i emphasize with i am who i am which is in exodus three fourteen is that the God of Judaism is a God who speaks and a God who shows himself in history. And many other religions don't have that concept for their ultimate reality. Certainly Taoism does not, Buddhism does not, Hinduism does not. There might be a claim of some unspeakable mystery or some ineffable reality, but the God of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament is a God who gives knowledge to people about himself and about the human condition and salvation and ethics and so on. So that's what I really wanted to focus on. And when you have to pick one sentence from <laughs> a world religion, the charge can be that you're being tendentious, you know, you're being artificial in choosing what you want to choose. And I tried it, I tried really to avoid that. So I defended this method and I used this method in a previous book called philosophy in seven sentences and the idea was to take a representative sentence as an entry point into philosophical discussion that's mm -hmm. what i'm trying to do but of course when you think of god calling himself the i am who i am i go to the new testament of course and this is the sentence i use for christianity where jesus says in a religious dispute before abraham was i am and they take up stones to stone him because he is claiming to be the God of the Hebrew Bible. Right? So there's certainly a connection there mm -hmm. between the sentence I take for Judaism and the sentence I take for Christianity. But if you're talking to a Jewish person today, first of all, you have to find out what kind of a Jew they are religiously. Mm -hmm. Some Jewish <laughs> people are not practicing. Yeah. They might even be atheists or agnostics. 
some Jewish people are more conservative, the Orthodox. You have other schools, the Reformed, Reconstructionist, Judaism. So the best thing to do if you're talking to a Jewish person, as I did a few weeks ago, is talk, you know, ask questions, listen. I had a wonderful conversation with this man, and in fact, I'm sending him the book, and we might do some dialogues or discussions about it publicly. I certainly enjoyed talking with him about it. So if you want a kind of a summary of the history of Judaism, go to Wynne Cordovan's book. (laughs) If you want a discussion of one key element of the God of the Hebrew Bible, that is God is a speaking, revealing, communicating, acting God, then I treat that in my book. Yeah, that's great. So, so yeah, so as you just said, the book is meant to be a primer, and it's a part of this yeah. series of books from IVP uh, called such, such and Such in Seven Sentences, and it's it acts mm-hmm. as that primer. But it does a, a fantastic job of introducing a core tenet, a core theme, and talking that through. Um, so y- you choose to end your book then with Islam. So how should we understand and think about Islam uh, through the lens of the seven sentences? Right. The sentence I chose for Islam was pretty easy, and that is the statement of faith. You become a Muslim by saying there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. You say that with conviction, and that makes you a Muslim. Hmm. So if you look at the relationship of Judaism to Christianity to Islam, of course, there's an historical sequence, but there's also theological claims involved in each religion. So Christianity claims to be the fulfillment of Judaism, and Jesus is the promised Messiah of Isaiah 7, Isaiah 53, so many passages, really the whole thrust of the Hebrew Bible and Jewish people, Christians say, is Jesus as Messiah. But then Islam comes along, and Muhammad says that he's received revelation through an angel from the one true God that is the final revelation of religion. So Muhammad is considered the last prophet, the seal of the prophets. And you find monotheism, obviously. Uh, Muhammad was militantly a believer in one God and spoke harshly against polytheism. You know, when he went back to Mecca after escaping to Medina, he destroyed all the idols in Mecca, the 360 idols around the Kaaba, the Holy Rock, and so on. But there's this claim of succession Hmm. that Islam succeeds and really replaces Christianity Mm -hmm. as the final revelation of Allah, the God. So I look at that claim and I consider the similarities between Christianity and Islam. We Muslims and Christians believe in one God, one creator, designer God, a God who sends prophets, a God who speaks through scripture. And when you look at the Christology of Islam, there are parallels with the Bible as well. The Quran teaches that Jesus was sinless, that he worked miracles, that he was a prophet of Allah, and other very praiseworthy things. But of course, the point of disagreement there is that while Christians claim Jesus was God incarnate, Muslims absolutely reject that as heresy. And they also reject that he died an atoning death for our sin. 
because in Islam, you simply have to obey Allah in the hopes that at the final judgment, you will inherit paradise and not torment. Mm -hmm. So the work of Jesus as the mediator between God and man is denied by Islam. And that's not a small thing. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, when people blithely say that that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, we have to say, well, who is God for the Muslim? Not a trinity. Jesus is not God. Jesus is not a mediator. So the very de definition of God for Islam contradicts that of Christianity. Now, we're both Muslims and Christians are monotheists as one creator God, but how we understand the oneness differs. Christians teach that God is one. We affirm the Shema of Judaism and Deuteronomy 6, and Paul says there is one God, but uh, the oneness of God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I don't take that to be a contradiction. I take that to be a very biblical view. So I think it was uh, proper to end with Islam, although there are other world religions, of course. I could talk about Baha'i faith. Sure. I could talk about um, uh, variations that come out of the Christian stream, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and so on. But I wanted to stick to some major world religions and make apologetic and philosophical points along the way. And you could view this book in one sense as a kind of apologetic for Christianity. Yeah. But I don't want to be unfair in my exposition of what the religions teach. And I want to be as rational and logical as I can in my critique. I did an interview for somebody at Publishers Weekly mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and I was really happy to do that because that's a you know really well-established, long-standing yeah. publication. And the interviewer was a little bit feisty. She said, well, in the beginning, you talk about being respectful and kind and loving, and everybody has religious freedom. But then you say that Islam is based on the heretical ideas of a illiterate false prophet. <laughs> I said, well, uh, I'm trying to make an argument. You can be respectful towards someone and disagree with their viewpoint. And when it comes to Muhammad, Muslims are proud of the fact that he was illiterate because this is part of their apologetic. They mm -hmm. say no book that is so beautiful uh, could be composed by an illiterate man. It had to be received by God. Now, I'm not convinced by that argument. <laughs> but there is a way to respectfully engage the beliefs of people in other religions without being obnoxious, without being cruel, without being interrupted. It's difficult. It's tough to agree to disagree agreeably about ultimate religious issues. Mm -hmm. But it can happen. In fact, I did it a few weeks ago uh, with a Jewish rabbi. We yeah. had a, a great conversation. And I didn't pull back on my beliefs at all. So I'm hoping that Christians might read this book and be a little more informed and a little more confident in talking to Buddhists and Hindus and Jewish folks and, and Muslims and so on. Well, and I think I think for Christians, we have even like a, a deeper push to be respectful of people of other faiths because we were all made in the image of God, right? If you hold a Christian view, then you would right. believe that every single person, regardless of their faith, 
is made in God's image and is completely and ultimately loved by God. Absolutely. And, you know, the golden rule is to do unto others as um, you would have them do unto you. So I don't like people to misrepresent Christianity, and I should not misrepresent Hinduism or Buddhism or Judaism or anything else. So I think if we apply the golden rule, then we want to be fair and accurate with what other people believe. But that doesn't mean we just leave it at that, because the gospel needs to go out into the world. And Peter famously says in 1 Peter 3 that we need to present the gospel to anyone who asks us, but to do so with gentleness and respect. He says, have a reason for the hope that is within you. Confess Christ as Lord. Present that reason with gentleness and respect. So it's tough to be gentle and respectful and still aim at the truth when the truth will contradict a deep belief of someone you're talking to, whether it's a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or anybody else. But in the power of the Spirit, it's certainly possible. I've done it. Many people have done it uh, better than I have uh, for long periods of time. And in a religious, in a religiously plural world, we need to have the ability uh, to engage in those kind of discussions and dialogues with people. You've been teaching classes now on comparative religion for for a while at Denver Seminary, right? So, yes. so what kind of questions are students bringing? Is there is there have you seen any transformation of thought or have you seen things change in the way that students are approaching these classes on comparative religion in, in specifically and then I'm I'm curious mm-hmm. about philosophy in general um too, but I'm I'm just I'm just curious if you've seen either a shift recently or or anything of note in how students are approaching the subject? I designed a class back in the early 90s, I think 93 or 94, called Religious Pluralism, and I've taught that just about every year ever since. In fact, our chaplaincy students have to take that class because they'll be ministering to people of various faiths and they need to understand those faiths. Yeah. Uh, I think the basic questions are about the same. That is, how do we relate the truth of Christianity, that Christ is the only mediator, um, to those of other faiths? How do we understand it as Christians? Uh, Is that fair, that Christ is the only way when many people have not heard of Christ, and so on? And I don't really address those issues too much in this book, I do address them in some detail in my book, Christian Apologetics, the first and second edition. There's a chapter simply called Religious Pluralism. So I think the questions are pretty much the same. I have an assignment that I've given every year, I believe, since I created the class, and that is that the students have to interview someone of another religion about that person's basic beliefs, and then they need to attend a religious ceremony of that person's or concerning those person's uh, beliefs. So you interview a Buddhist, you go to a Buddhist ceremony, you interview a Muslim, you attend a mosque, something like that. And then they write up a report about that because it's significant not only to know what people believe, but the kind of religious practices they're involved in. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that being a powerful Thing because it's 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 usually something that is shrouded in mystery. We think we know, but we until you step foot into that place, you don't fully mm-hmm. you know 
get a grasp of, you know, uh, the passion, the faith, the belief that is going right. on in other people. Uh, is there... Yeah, and it can... Yeah. Uh, if I could uh, follow up for a second. Yeah, please. It can be a little tricky because, of course, I tell my students, as a Christian, you're not there to worship. Yeah. You're there to observe. observe. So make sure that you talk to people ahead of time and make sure you're not going to get drawn into a ceremony or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I also tell students to to pray uh, because they could be going into a situation with quite a bit of spiritual darkness. Mm. So students have found this to be meaningful and significant over the years. In fact, there was kind of a funny thing that happened once. One of my students went to a, a Buddhist meditation time. Mm. And for some reason, during part of the Buddhist meditation time, this guy was going around with a squirt bottle that had water in it, <laughs> and he was squirting it on people to clear their consciousness or something, and he mm. went to my student and squirted him in the face. <laughs> I don't think the student was injured, but yeah. <laughs> it, was not, it wasn't expected. <laughs> That's funny. So is there anything, as I mentioned earlier, you're a professor a philosophy. And so is there anything that you've been seeing in the way that, that a society thinks about, uh, about faith in general or about Christianity in particular? Have you seen any changes over the last decade or so in just the way things have been shifting yeah. in terms of thought? I think the main issues are about the same. Uh, that is, is any religion true? Can we know if any religion is true? I think some people want to claim that all religions somehow point to the truth in different ways, or different paths up the same mountain, different rivers flow into the same sea, that kind of thing. Mm. So we have to show that the essential truth claims of the world religions don't get along with each other very well. You've got to make some intellectual decisions about these truth claims. I mean, the most fundamental one is is there a personal infinite creator god or not and the monotheistic traditions say yes and the non-monotheistic traditions say no but even if you think there is a designer creator who brought the universe into existence and there's tremendous scientific evidence for that um has that god revealed himself and if so is it in the hebrew bible only is it in the hebrew bible in the new testament what about the quran so we have a lot of issues to explore and to investigate. But the one thing maybe that's been happening more in the last 10 years that I mentioned earlier is this kind of uh, apathyism. Yeah. That, well, we don't need to worry about it. Why care? Uh, the idea of you can be spiritual without being religious. Mm -hmm. You can kind of cobble together your own spiritual viewpoint without joining any organization of course the last 10 years we've had the rise of people who don't identify with any religious group the nuns you know the n-o-n-e-s's yeah that's a a new trend hmm. so i think it's a challenge to christians to understand what other people think and then to have a strong argument for what we believe have a reason for the hope that is within us present this with gentleness and respect and then also encourage people to consider the Christian way of life, not just Christian beliefs, but it's good to belong to a spiritual tradition, a spiritual organization 
mm-hmm. if it's based on truth. I think a lot of Americans simply want to have a little bit of Christianity. You know, we like some things about Jesus. <laughs> we also like Buddhism and mindfulness, and mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea I could be reincarnated. So I'll put all those things together <laughs> and uh, listen to the podcasts that support my beliefs. Yeah. But human beings need a deeper solidarity with the truth, with reality than that. And Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And he said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So everyone needs Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and everyone needs to be deeply affiliated with a Bible-believing church. Well, I... I... I want to thank you for your time, and I'm and again. The link to the book is in the show notes. I I I want to give you the last word. Is is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners about um, being mindful of or pursuing intellectual health? Well, the best thing for intellectual health is to be honest before God and to believe what Scripture has taught. Romans says that we should be transformed through the renewing of our minds, and that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, working through Scripture, working through the Church. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second was like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Christians have nothing to fear from pursuing truth through reason and evidence. Uh, I've been doing this now for 47 years since I converted as a young man. And I am more convinced and more passionate that Christianity is true, reasonable, and pertinent than I ever have been. So we all need that kind of intellectual confidence. And if we have questions or even doubts, then pursue them, look into it. Because I think there are good and sufficient answers to the deepest questions of life to be found in a biblical worldview. And if you have some questions or struggles, then look into it. I did a session with a small group of people a couple of weeks ago that involved supposed contradictions in the Bible. Mm. And I gave a strategy for dealing with that, and we looked at a few supposed contradictions. And there's nothing ungodly about pursuing a deeper understanding of Scripture and the Christian view of life. We should do that. Mm. The book is World Religions in Seven Sentences. You can also find links to a Christian apologetics and philosophy in seven sentences. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now let's look at at some doable steps out of this episode. First, make sure to check out Dr. Grotice's books. We mentioned the one that this episode was about, World Religions in Seven Sentences, and there's also philosophy in seven sentences, and Christian apologetics, and many others. You'll find links to all of these in the show notes. Second, speaking of apologetics, consider doing your own apologetic deep dive. You can find a number of books or podcasts all about apologetics, and I've put a few links in the show notes for those. Third, consider doing the assignment that Dr. Grotheis mentioned he gave to his students. Talk with somebody who you know practices a different faith and learn about their beliefs. Conversation is such a powerful way to know and appreciate better people who are different than you. 
This has been Indoable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast. We'll be back with you again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week.